1: Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Alexander Barnes, co-author of Playball, Doughboys, and Baseball During the Great War. Al, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: I'm glad to be with you, Bob.
1: Al served in the Marines and the Army National Guard for 30 years, retiring as a Chief Warrant Officer. He's a veteran of Desert Storm and is currently the Virginia National Guard Command Historian. Al, can you give us some more background about your career, and since they're not here tonight, a little bit of background about your co-authors?
0: Sure, I'd be glad to. I grew up in a military family. Both my parents were World War II veterans. And uh, after World War II, Dad transferred into the Air Force. So I was fortunate enough to grow up with Germany most of my life. Uh, and by the time I turned 18, which was in 1973, it was really just a matter of which uh, boot camp I was going to go to. So I chose the Marines, and that kind of led me down the path I'm on now. Now, Pete Belmonte is a former Air Force uh, navigator, so Pete actually has technical skills that are usable. He's a you know he lives a dangerous life. He's a Cubs fan living in St. Louis, and, and my son Sam, who is the the other co-author, you know he had the, the fortune of growing up most of his life in Richmond, and uh, the local minor league ball. All team was the uh, Richmond Braves, the AAA for the Atlanta Braves. And for Sam, uh, it was really a matter of the, that was his playground. Was the, the, the baseball diamond there? He went to he went to a lot of games. And he's carried his love of the game with him through his studies at JMU and now working as an archivist for me.
1: So, uh, what was it about baseball during the latter stages of World War One that uh, caught the interest and in your attention of yourself and, and your colleagues?
0: Well, you know. It's been an age-old question. How do you keep soldiers out of trouble when they aren't actually fighting? And the answer is lots and lots of sports. And so recognizing this, uh, before the war even began, uh, the the U.S. Army and Marine Corps every company, platoon, battalion, had a baseball team. They also had football teams, some of them, and some of the other sports, but everybody had a baseball team so no matter where the American Army and Marine Corps went, and the Navy too, uh, they brought the game with them. And, you know, when the, the Marines went into uh, the Dominican Republic in 1916, they brought baseball with them. And, and that's probably the reason why, you know, all the world's greatest shortstops stops come from the Dominican map. Uh, it's just a matter of soldiers love to, you've got to keep them busy, and they love baseball. And so when the war broke out, it was just a natural fit that, Every one of the training camps would have darn near as many uh, diamonds built as barracks buildings.
1: To back up just a little bit from a technical aspect, uh, how did the three of you approach the writing? Did all three of you like write separate chapters, or did one of you do uh, concentrate on the research? I mean, take us through that process. I mean, I could see two authors, but three, it seems like you'd almost be stumbling over each other if you weren't careful.
0: Actually, it worked out pretty well. Uh, it, it was easy, frankly, because Pete and I had written a book together before written a book together before. And uh, it was a book about the, the service of immigrants in the American Army in World War One. So Pete and I were pretty comfortable with our styles of how he wrote and how I wrote. Uh, so we, we were pretty good at sharing data files back and forth. Uh, when well, we brought Sam in, he, he became the, the deep researcher that went into the Army's archives at Fort Lee and, and pulled out a lot of stuff. And what we would end up doing was... Either Peter or I would write an outline for a chapter, and then Sam would come in and, and, and kind of lay down the fact-checking and the, and the deep research on where were these guys from, what was their date of birth rate, to give the, you know, the real nitty-gritty details on the players. But in the end, it came down to each one of us got a final draft copy and had to go through it line by line. And, and I, I think you'll see that our, our writing styles actually blended together pretty well. I, I don't think you can tell. A paragraph I wrote versus one that Pete wrote after a while because we we made so many changes as we went along.
1: Yeah, I certainly couldn't tell the difference. Um, so you felt like your methods worked pretty well in this in this uh,
0: effort. We did. I, you know, again, we're we're all baseball fans as well as World War One fans. So being given the opportunity to to write a book about two of our favorite topics—I mean, what could be better than that?
1: True. Did uh, did all of you, or just one of you, play baseball as a youth? And
0: you know, I don't know how much baseball Pete played. I played all the way up into when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, and after that, of course, as I got older, I played softball in all the leagues. And, and Sam played all the way through high school, but he switched over to rugby in, uh, when he went to college.
1: We should we should say here that uh, Sam, of course, is your son, just so the listeners understand that. Yeah. And uh, what position did you guys play?
0: He was basically an outfielder, and and I was always a first baseman because I was tall and lean. I'm sure Pete was probably a pitcher because he's smarter than all of us (laughs) put together.
1: All right, getting back to the book, let's talk about the United States situation now. What was the U.S. uh, situation politically and militarily as as 1918 rolled around?
0: Well, it started off pretty ugly. If if you think about it, when the U.S. declared war against Germany in 1917, April 17, uh, between the National Guard and the regular Army, we only had about 200,000 men who, who were actually in uniform. And, you know, and, and at the rate people were being killed and wounded on the Western Front, 200,000 men was, was nothing. And So the, the Army had to get big really fast. And, and so what they did was you know, they started a selective service and started drafting. First of all, every man in the country between the age of 21 and 31 had to register for the draft. It didn't matter if you were blind in one eye or if you were crippled or what color you were, or what race you were, what religion you were. If you were a man between the age of 21 and 31, you had to register for the draft. So that gave this huge manpower pool that the government could draft soldiers from. And after they went through the physicals and guys were selected, they were sent to training camps. And to give you an idea, there were uh, 32 major training camps all over the country and hundreds of smaller ones. And so by the end of the war, just 17 months later, there were 4 million uh, Americans in uniform. Uh, that's up to 200,000 in 17 months. That's a pretty impressive uh, statistic if you think about it. And so, again, the, the problem was everybody had to register, which meant everybody was eligible for the draft. And that, that included baseball players. So uh, a lot of the teams found themselves scrambling to, yeah, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to lose our, our, you know, most of our players are between the age of 21 and 31. So they had to register for the draft, and a few at a time were getting drafted into the army.
1: Yeah, there was there was no uh, there was no uh, letter from Franklin Roosevelt like he did in 1942. This was more of a worker fight situation in 1917-18. You
0: got you got it, you got it. it was a it, and what made matters worse was the following year, 1918, when they extended the draft age to 18 to 45 years of age. Heck, now the coaches, managers, uh, front office people. Now they were eligible, like the, the peanut sellers in the stands were eligible to be drafted. So it, it very quickly became a, a matter of, you know, either you join war industry, like you said, work, or join the army and fight. And, and so most of, this, you know, most of the ballplayers had to make that decision.
1: Yeah, and in the book, I mean, you, you guys talk about uh, play, you know, players playing games near the front line within, within shouting, and I would say within shooting distance of the Germans. I mean, that must have been terribly surreal.
0: You know, it, it really was. When you when you read some of these accounts, like uh, of the 29th Division, which I have a lot of feeling for because the Virginia National Guard was part of the 29th Division, when their chief of staff was watching the, the guys playing baseball while wearing their gas masks on their hips, and, and overhead you could see German aircraft flying around and, and French guys up in an observation booth all watching the game taking place. It was a, you know, it had to be a strange feeling. Man, uh, is, is this real or not
1: yeah, and I should say, is the uh, slogan for the twenty nine still twenty nine let 's go
0: It still is we we live by it every day
1: Which of the soldiers from the from the allies, either British or French or Belgians, whatever, seem to enjoy or, or understand the game the most
0: well you know this is something uh, that 's a great question because that 's something i' never even thought of it, it, that you know we share this continent with uh, with two other countries that love baseball, Canada and Mexico, and sure enough, the Canadian army they brought their own ball players over to uh, over to France, and it was uh, you know it, it being typical soldiers, the American soldiers would play them in a game, and if they won, they would declare themselves the world champions.
1: In in the um, in the course of your research, uh, which players that, that served over there do you believe had the most compelling stories? The ones that played, I should say.
0: You know, there were a couple that really stand out. Uh, Of course, the most famous is probably Grover Cleveland Alexander, since there was a movie made about his life. You know, and he was played in the movie by Ronald Reagan. Uh, You know, he actually was a a real combat artilleryman fighting in the Meuse-Argonne. And and his unit took a terrible beating, and he paid the price for it the rest of his life. He struggled with uh, alcoholism later in life. And, and even the other players would notice that when firecrackers were being set off near some of the ball games, that they'd look over and, and he would be punched over like he was someplace far away. So he was really kind of a compelling story. Uh, there was another one of a, of a minor league ball player named Calvin Bryant, who was uh, an Indian uh, off the reservation in Oklahoma, who was killed on the very last day of the war. And you know that... To go all that distance and then be killed on the last day of the war, that had to be.
1: Was was that the guy that was killed like an hour before the armistice was signed?
0: You got it. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, of course, it, it, there are other, there are happier stories, too. Like the uh, there was a, a minor league ball player who received the Medal of Honor and went back to, the, to after the war, went back to playing baseball. Like, how the heck do you go back to playing minor league baseball after you Received the Medal of Honor for heroism in the Meuse Argonne. That's yeah. And if you're an umpire, how can you call a strike on a guy like that? It's just fascinating stories.
1: And of course there's the I would say not the most famous, but one of the most famous is Eddie Grant.
0: Oh yeah. Truly uh the 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 best known ball player who was actually killed in the war. It and, and, and you know we we struggled with it. With Eddie because we had this really good section we wanted to write in the book called a bad week for baseball because you know the the muse are was You know the United States largest land battle in history. And there were 1.2 million American soldiers fighting in this, in this Part of France and so everybody was in there the whole army was in there fighting and and, and of course because of that about five or six different ballplayers, you know, major leaguers and minor leaguers, were all killed within the same stretch of days. And, and we were just about to the final draft on, on that part of the book, and Sam came and said, you know, I think we got a problem. We've got two different death dates for, for Eddie Grant. And the problem is it's no longer, you know, a bad week for baseball. It's a bad 10 days for baseball. Well, that doesn't sound quite as dramatic. So we had to, we had to do a lot last-minute research to find out, and and that included taking the, uh, the uh, the Army's order of battle and where the 77th Division was actually fighting to determine what was Eddie Grant's actual date of death, which, you know, it's a minor detail, but that's the kind of stuff, if you're a baseball fan, we live for minor details.
1: Baseball is all about statistics and yes. facts. So yeah, and, and and if you put in one that's wrong, there's a, there's a thousand baseball fans that will jump in to correct you.
0: Oh, you you, you know it. <laughs> they're, they're, anytime you write a book, you're just opening your shirt and saying, you know, shoot me now, because <laughs> somebody knows more than you and they're pissed that you didn't come talk to them about what they knew, even if Very you had true. no idea who they were. <laughs>
1: Did the uh, soldiers who play baseball overseas uh, believe in 1918 that they were going to be overseas for the long haul, maybe past
0: 1918? They did, you know. And if you, the reason, you know, we had two million men, two million soldiers, uh, you know, Army, Marines, and some sailors in France by November 1918, and two million more were sitting on the East Coast waiting for ships to carry them over to France. Because the real plan was to win the war in 1919 with a big spring offensive in April or May 1919, you know, and, and so things had gone according to plan. You know, this month would be the month for the celebration of the end of the war instead of November of last year. Because the, so these guys thought that they they were in for the long haul, and, and so everywhere they went, they, they built these. You know, they built their diamonds, and, and, and it's funny because you read their letters and they, they talk about how. Well, we've planted baseball in France. It'll be here forever. (laughs) Within six months of the army leaving France, there there probably wasn't a French guy playing baseball anywhere on the continent. (laughs) They they just, you know, the game did not appeal to them.
1: How did the uh, <clears throat> how did the soldiers react when they saw players like uh, you know Cobb, Ty Cobb, and Grover and Alexander, and even a, a former star like Christy Mathewson? Were they kind of starstruck, or were they just uh, figuring they're regular guys?
0: I think they, I think they were. I, I think, uh, and I think that's probably. And if you read some some of Cobb's writings, it kind of give you an indication that that what happened was big big name players like Christy Mathewson and, and Ty Cobb and. And some of the other guys, uh, you know, people knew who they were, and so they they made them instructors because, they you know, they had the instant respect of all the young 18- and 19-year-old kids that were coming to France to fight. And so, you know, if they knew that that was Ty Cobb was teaching them why it's important to wear your gas mask, they might pay attention.
1: Oh, that's for sure, especially in light of what happened to, to Matheson.
0: Oh, isn't that the truth? I, what a sad that both he and Ty Cobb were both in that same incident where they didn't get the warning to put their masks on in time. And, and if you read Cobb's own words, he, he thought he was going to die. Right? Like he, he really thought he was going to die. We took
1: it all. We brought them
0: to our land.
1: An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play
0: it now with Game Pass.
1: What was the um? Uh, what was the most interesting piece of information that you found while you guys were researching?
0: You know, it came by accident. Yeah. Um, after the war, when, when part of the armistice required that. The American army had to send a, a force into Germany to go become a, an occupation army along the Rhineland, along with the French and the British. Uh, you know, the Americans sent a quarter of a million soldiers into Germany. 250,000 guys left the Meuse argonne and, and marched into Germany. And, and being typical American soldiers, as soon as they got there and, and found out where they were living and got everything, of the first thing they did, even with the bad weather, was start playing baseball. And, and so they had these big championship rounds, and, 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 and so I was fascinated by that, because, again, I grew up in Germany and understood how Germans looked at baseball as being something from another planet. But they played everywhere they went. And we got this uh, a collection of photographs of, of these guys playing baseball for the championship in Germany. And one of the guys had a unique name, and, and as we were doing research, it turned out that here were, this was a guy who had been a soldier. Had uh, played in, like, industrial league-level baseball before the war, fought through the war, played in the Army, in the occupation, and came back to the States and actually made it to the major leagues for one game, kind of like one of those uh, Field of Dreams characters. Right.
1: It's like Moonbeam Graham.
0: Exactly. It was like, can you believe how cool is that? So we've, we've, we actually had a picture, and we were able to put it in the book of this guy crossing the plate, scoring a run during the championship game, and Crazy. he later on went to, to play one game in the majors for the St. Louis Browns against the Boston Red Sox. Now, that was truly a unique moment.
1: So um, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered?
0: You know, I, I, that one of the most surprising things I, I found was that, uh, you know, the Army of, of 1917, 1918 was, was you know, highly integrated, unless you were an African-American or from an African country. So what that meant was you had units that were filled with white guys, Hispanic guys, Asian guys, and then you had totally segregated units that were in, in, they kind of mirrored baseball at the time. You know, you had Negro leagues and the major leagues. Uh, what I was shocked to find was that there was a lot of, uh, they played each other a lot. You know, the idea was, hey, let's get up a team and we'll play you guys and. and and there, So they seem to have you know, broken the color barrier in the Army a lot faster than they did in Major League Baseball.
1: So um, as far as research goes and as far as the first book you wrote on, was it was it a little bit more easier to do research? I mean, the, the way the Internet is, has progressed in the last couple of years?
0: Yeah, it, it, I, I think so. Uh, the, the problem is I, I try to uh, avoid Internet research as much as possible. And, and you could probably tell that we went back to the original newspapers of the – of you know the Stars and Stripes in Paris in 1917, and the Army of Occupation newspaper in 1919, because a, a lot of times it just you know Wikipedia is a wonderful thing, but you really have to to, to check your sources because you, you know you you don't know what other people will put in there.
1: So um so from start to finish, then how long did it take you to complete this project? When did you come up with the idea, and I guess you finished it recently, obviously.
0: Yeah, we uh. You know, it took us, again, we had it easier than than you'd think because Pete and I had worked together on the immigrant book. And so we had a really good system to make sure that we never overwrote each other's files or, you know, lost photographs or, or, you know, so so we had a pretty good system in place. And and Sam kind of dovetailed into that. And so overall, it, it took us, you know, 10 months to... From when we said, all right, we're starting, you know, table of contents, page one. But all along during the past five or six years, anytime I'd seen anything about baseball, I'd set it aside. And I know Pete was doing the same sort of thing just because it was so fascinating. And so we actually had a lot of material already set aside before we actually started, you know, got the contract from, from the publisher to write the book.
1: And tell us about the photographs that you found. How, where did you find them? I mean, the, a lot of those, I'm sure, baseball fans had, ever, had never seen before.
0: Yeah. it's uh, Again, we went back to, to primary sources, it, it, and I found there's this vast network of baseball and military collectors out there who are more than willing to share their stuff with you if, if you give them a good cause. And so, you know, I contacted some of the guys that I'd known from some of my previous books, and I said, what have you got of guys from the 4th Division playing baseball in Germany? And sure enough, somebody would find something. And so you'll kind of see that as you go through the the book. There are a lot of different sources from guys that that voluntarily lent us, you know, some very unique and unpublished uh, photographs of, of soldiers playing baseball, and baseball players play in soldier. It's it's kind of a you know the dichotomy, but it works so well because it, in the end it turned out that the, the real link was the game.
1: So here's the part of the interview where I ask you, um, what have I missed in asking you? Is there anything you'd like to add about this book that that I've missed or that you haven't thought of just yet?
0: You know one of the things that's kind of fun and I, that we haven't talked about was the fact, and you probably saw in the the chapter on the occupation of Germany was this idea of a woman's game uh, that took place in Germany in in 1920. And and this game was huge. Uh, It was the Army nurses against the YMCA ladies in Germany. And a lot of people don't realize that the USO didn't exist in World War I. All the soldier support service organizations like the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and the YMCA and the American Library Association all had representatives that they sent overseas to, to support the troops. And so there was a large contingent of YMCA and YWCA workers throughout France and then later into Germany. Well, these ladies, uh, you know, the Army nurses, were, you know, they, they thought they were pretty good ballplayers, and they took on the YMCA ladies in, in a big game that had, a, you know, over 8,000 people attended it, which is you know, a phenomenal number of people <laughs> In Germany in 1920, watching a ball game between these ladies. And it was a heck of a game. And, and, and I wonder sometime if maybe that was a, you know, the it, it received so much publicity, if that might not have been one of the reasons that, that during World War II that they had some of the women's leagues of professional baseball players. Oh, right, right. League of their own. Yeah, exactly. I You know, I um, could almost trace the roots. One, one
1: to this. thing I did like about the book, too, and, and I did mention it before, is the kind of the glossary of, of uh, or biographical sketches you have on so many different players. I mean, that was, as a a researcher, if you're a baseball nut, that's going to be a valuable resource.
0: That's fun. I always, you know, this was my my seventh book. And what I I always try to put in one chapter that has the unique stuff you wouldn't expect to find. You know, the kind of stories that you hear while drinking a beer in the barracks of, of unusual things that happened in a unit. Like uh, the the one where the aviator flew over the baseball field and dropped the dummy. It's like, uh, you know, what the heck was that about? But again, and I always like to have a, a, a chapter with nothing but short biographies of some of the people that, that you didn't get to meet earlier or later in the book. So that, those are always fun to work on because, you know, there are some fascinating people that play in baseball in the early, early part of this century. And the fact that they served in the Army, too, uh, or Navy, like Casey Stengel, Makes it even more interesting.
1: Well, let's talk about that rivalry for a second. Uh, who had the better players, Army or Navy, or Marines?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a cruel cool question. It is cruel. <laughs> uh, you know what? Well, what? Well, you know, we could do the math. Uh, let's see. In 1936, the first five Hall of Fame players elected were Honus uh, were Wagner, uh, Walter Johnson, Babe Ruth, uh, Ty Cobb, and Christy Mathewson. Well, that's 40% of those five, Ty and Christie, were in the Army. So you could say, you know, the first class going into the Hall of Fame, 40% were Army. But the Navy had some pretty good ballplayers, too. They had, you know, Rabbit Moranville and Harry Heelman and Herb Pennock, who was a great pitcher for the Yankees. And even Casey Stengel himself was, <laughs> right. was in the Navy.
1: And Stan Musial and Yogi Berra both were in the Navy as well. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. That's a different war. You can't, you can't That's count true. those guys. That's true. <laughs> but you know who I found was fascinating? was a guy that, that I never knew very much about. It was a, a guy named Eppa Rixie And he's a <laughs> Hall of Famer who was a, uh, he, until Warren Spann came along, he owned the record for the most wins by a left-handed pitcher and the most losses by a left-handed pitcher. And he went in the Hall of Fame in 1963. But Eppa was from, shoot, just up the, the road a couple miles from where we are here in Virginia, and he never played a minute in the minor leagues he, he went right from the University of Virginia into the major leagues and then later joined the chemical Corps with Christy Matthewson and Ty Cobb which uh-huh. is, uh, you know that's a guy that I, I'd really like to learn more about because they said that he was had a terrible temper and if he lost a game he'd tear up the uh, you know the locker room but then then during the the offseason he'd go home and teach high school kids Latin so so how do you reconcile those two kind of personalities Teach a high school kid
1: Latin. <laughs> Competitive on the field, but a scholar off of it, I guess.
0: Yeah, he, he knew how to turn it on and turn it off. So, <laughs> but he was a he was an army player too. So I, I got to come down on there. So.
1: <laughs> well, this has been a very interesting interview, and I know that your time is valuable. Now, do you guys have another project in the works?
0: You know, uh, we have got a couple things we're looking at because Pete is very big into uh, into tracing. Immigrants, especially Italian-Americans who served in the military in World War One and World War II. And so I know he's got a couple of things about that that he's working on and I'm finishing up a history for the Marine Corps on the uh, the 5th Brigade, the ones that served as uh, services of supply in World War One. Uh, you know, everybody knows about Belleau Wood and Chateau Thierry and the, and the big battles. Well, these Marines arrived a little later and ended up, and they were, they went everywhere. They, they did everything from guarding prisoners to delivering mail to uh, running the transit camps. Just a real interesting group of guys. And they had a couple ball players and amongst them. So you may see some more baseball in the Marine Corps coming out. Uh, in fact, one of Cy Young's uh, former catchers was a guy named J.J. Clark from Canada, was a, a Marine who, uh, who served in France in the Marine Corps, went home, went back into baseball, took a look around, said, the heck with this, and he rejoined the Marine Corps.
1: Very good. Well, we've been speaking with Alexander Barnes, co-author of Play Ball, Doughboys and Baseball During the Great War, along with uh, Peter Belmonte and Sam, Sam Barnes. Al, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it.
0: Bob, it was a real pleasure. Anytime you could talk baseball and Doughboys, I mean, there's nothing better than that.
1: Very true. Well, you've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.